This is The Feed. From Markham. From Richmond Hill. From Vaughn. From Aurora. East Gwillimbury. Whitchurch, Stouffville. From everywhere you are. This is The Feed, York Region's only news magazine dedicated to the issues, events, and stories that matter to all of us who live and work here. Welcome to The Feed. I'm Ann Romer. On the show, PTSD and frontline healthcare workers, Blue Door and Habitat for Humanity joining forces, and let's go to the movies. But first, the doctor says farewell. York Region's Medical Officer of Health, Dr. Kareem Kurji, started his pandemic journey on March 11, 2020, just like the rest of us, but from a very different perspective. He was our guest on 105.9 The Region's COVID-19 radio special that day. In fact, the WHO declared we were officially in a pandemic while Dr. Kurji and I were live on the air. He was calm, cool, and collected in the face of this unwanted and rather terrifying breaking news. He has maintained that demeanor through the worst of COVID-19 and has worked tirelessly to guide York Region through and out of this global pandemic. His decisions were communicated in a clear and concise manner, most of which were met favorably by the citizens of York Region, but there was, on occasion, pushback and criticism, even a petition to have Dr. Kurji fired. On June 17th of this year, he announced his retirement effective next Thursday, September 30th, almost 19 months since the start of the pandemic. York Region's Departing Medical Officer of Health, Dr. Kareem Kurji, joins us now on the feed. Thank you so much for being with us, Dr. Kurji. You're most welcome, Ed. So, was there anything in your storied background, in your experience, that could have prepared you for the declaration of the pandemic, March 11th, 2020? I think the crisis in 2013 involving SARS was really good training, and uh, the fact that we have such a great team of epidemiologists who put in the appropriate indicators, it enabled us to make rational decisions, and we always invited critique and open participation at our emergency operation meetings, and of course, there was the partnership, a very strong partnership with all our partners hospitals, pharmacists, physicians, nurse practitioners, paramedics, municipalities, school boards, and the media. I mean, all that really helped us get through it. And speaking of the media, you were my guest on our live special, which was about COVID-19. I believe it began at the noon hour. And while we were live, March the 11th, 2020, the WHO declared the pandemic. And I remember your response. You were calm cool and collected. What was going through your mind when you first heard that it was going to be declared a pandemic? Uh, The first thing that was going through my mind was that we needed to make very valiant attempts to prevent uh, it from getting established in York Region. And uh, we had found during our experience with SARS that excellent case contact and outbreak management usually helped in keeping it in check. So um, those were the thoughts that were going through my mind at the time. I never really expected, um, you know, the um, cases to get to the stages that we saw unfold. So walk us through what was already part of your arsenal, if you will, already kind of in place in case of a pandemic. What was there and ready for you that you had put together? So within the regional municipality of York, we have an old plan, and uh, most of our planning revolves around the communicable disease outbreak. 
So we had all the essential ingredients in place. Um, with any crisis, there are always going to be twists and turns, uh, but we had the infrastructure in place to be able to deal effectively with anything that happens. So take off your medical officer of health hat and put on your Kareem Kurji hat, a husband, father, a, a citizen. At any point in the early going, were you frightened? Uh, no, actually, I, I wasn't. Uh, I was um, hopeful that through really good case contact and outbreak management, we would be able to contain this until such time as we got vaccines developed. Uh, it had been my hope that vaccines would get developed sooner rather than later, and I was pleased to say that that's exactly what happened. Dr. Kurji, you spent a lot of time with the Ontario Ministry of Health, including Ontario's Associate Chief Medical Officer of Health, your Physician Manager, Population Health Services. You briefly served as Ontario's Chief Medical Officer of Health, Acting Assistant uh, Deputy Minister of Health. Lots and lots and lots of interaction with the government. What was the interaction like once the pandemic was declared? Where you called upon to consult the health and sciences table? My uh, primary focus was with uh, the uh, pandemic as it was unfolding in York Region. However, it did involve a lot of consultations with the Chief Medical Officer of Health and some of the Associate Chief MOHs. Uh, we have ourselves got many experts within uh, the public health branch itself and many that came to assist us. And so we had open dialogue with them and also with our hospital presidents as well as uh, the many MOHs in the region in, in Ontario. What were some of the decisions that you made over the last 19 months to try and protect the 1.2 million lives, the citizens of York Region? I think there were many decisions. Perhaps the one that stands out most is uh, the shift to the hotspot strategy, uh, which we did on April the 8th. And about two weeks to three weeks later, we saw the case counts drop. Uh, this particular shift uh, related to vaccinations uh, in uh, those individuals who we consider to be in the hotspots. And it really requires tremendous degree of targeting and data analysis, given that the vaccines that we had were very limited in numbers. Dr. Kurji, I remember through this pandemic, at one point, you requested that businesses stay open, and there was some pushback when it came to that decision. There was clearly some cross-border movement, if you will, and some people felt that it may have encouraged the spread of COVID-19 and into the third wave, this decision to try to keep businesses open and the cross-border uh, uh, activity that was taking place. So I have always believed that... Uh uh, we have to look at the community as a whole, including, you know, the impacts on mental health, social isolation, and on the economy. And I believe that uh, the red zone of restrictions seemed to be the sweet spot that we were in. And uh, when we looked at the curves for other jurisdictions that were in greater degrees of lockdowns, we didn't necessarily see any great advantages in terms of cases. Now, it had also been my hope that vaccines would come in earlier, uh, preferably uh, by uh, late February, early March, in large quantities, because that's what we seem to be hearing. And so it had been a question of uh, 
using case contact management, targeted interventions to keep our case numbers low as we get our vaccines in. Unfortunately, there were delays in getting vaccines, and also we had seen an increase in cases as a result of travel-related cases. Um, these are all learnings that we learned subsequently, but I still feel that uh, we did the best we could with the data that we had with respect to trying to keep our businesses open for as long as we could in as safe a way as possible. You worked tirelessly through this pandemic to try to guide York Regionites through this pandemic. At a certain point, and again, this was kind of the pushback from some of the decisions that you made, there was an online petition to have you fired on uh, change.org. That must have hurt. Um, I believe that uh, they were misguided with respect to the data that they may have been using. Until this day, I don't really know what it is that they were looking at. We have a team of epidemiologists. We have a lot of data that we go through. Not all of it is made public, given the limitations. Um, So I feel that their particular analysis was misguided. However, we have to follow the data and we have to have the courage to do the right things with respect to what the data suggested. So, Dr. Kurji, let's now look at some of the great achievements that you have made uh, as Medical Officer of Health for York Region these past 19 months. Let's talk first about the number of people who have been vaccinated in York Region. Well, at this point, at least uh, 81% of our population is fully vaccinated, with about over 85% having received their first doses. I think that that's a tremendous achievement. However, we still know that the unvaccinated individuals are 9.5 times more likely to get the infection than vaccinated individuals. And if we really are going to be very serious about getting this COVID-19 controlled, we really have to urge all those that have yet to be vaccinated to roll up their sleeves and get vaccinated. I know there are anxieties and questions, but we hope that our healthcare providers can assist with respect to answering those questions. Interesting. Pfizer right now is pushing for approval for 5-year-olds up to 11-year-olds to be vaccinated. What are your thoughts on that? Very encouraged by that. I understand that uh, uh, within Canada, I think we would probably be waiting until the FDA in the States has approved the vaccine. And uh, so from a timing standpoint, uh, it appears that it won't be until late November, early December that the vaccine would be available for children 5 to 11. Then, given that it's a different formulation and not just the same Pfizer vaccine at a reduced dose, um, we will have to wait and see whether we get adequate supplies of it right away. If we didn't get adequate supplies, I believe the plan would be to follow some sort of uh, age-based vaccination program. What are your thoughts on the variants that keep reaching their tentacles out to us? So Delta, which we're dealing with, and Mu, the newest uh, that seems to have landed on the shores of, of our country. What are your thoughts on the variants? We continue to monitor the new variant, the mu variant, and there are two markers in particular that we are 
we are monitoring as a proxy for the beta, gamma, and mu, but the activity in York region is quite low at this point. However, it is possible, given that this is a pandemic, uh, there will be new variants that will arise. It is my belief that the current vaccines will probably be able to provide a good level of protection, as they have done in past times. Uh, however, we have to be ready for the unexpected. It is possible that new vaccines can be developed in a short period of time uh, if they were necessary. Would you like to see eligibility expand for booster shots? At this point in time, the greatest bang for the buck really is in getting unvaccinated individuals vaccinated. Mm-hmm. Booster doses, I think at this point, have been expanded to the level that the science seems to indicate as being appropriate. And I'm quite happy with those decisions that have been made by the province. And what do you think about the future of mask wearing? How important is that when it comes to containing and even beating COVID-19? I think mask wearing is uh, relatively inexpensive and uh, uh, easy way for us to contain the spread of COVID-19. So it is my hope that that particular practice will continue Uh, for as long as we have the threat of COVID-19 around us, which actually may be for a few more years to come. When you look back at the past 19 months, Dr. Kurji, what do you think? How do you feel about what has happened, the pressure that you were under, the work that you did? And, you know, we're starting to see the light at the end of the tunnel, an overused expression, but I think it's apt at this point. How do you feel about the past 19 months? Actually, I feel very good about the strong collaboration that has existed between the various partners. A lot of people have worked extremely hard. We mustn't forget our hospital workers. However, I think that all these efforts have paid great dividends, and uh, the worst is behind us. But now we just have to get those individuals who, for one reason or the other, feel that they shouldn't be receiving the vaccines to hopefully change their minds and then we can all get back to a greater degree of normality. Dr. Kurji, why are you retiring? I had decided to be retiring uh, just prior to COVID-19 hitting and uh, when in fact COVID-19 came around, I felt that with the experience that I've had at the province with respect to SARS and several other crises, it was important for me to lead my team through this particular crisis. I also have some personal family issues that do need to be attended to uh, in the UK. Uh, In addition to that, I'd love to spend time with my grandchildren. One of my grandchild was born uh, during COVID times and I need to form the right sort of bonding with my grandchildren. Dr. Kurji, when you tell your grandchildren about what you did through the pandemic of 2020, 2021, and we're probably still going to be grappling with it in 2022, what will you say to your grandchildren about the work you did? Well, I think this is going to be somewhat uh, difficult. Um... For a start, uh, my eldest grandchild, who is uh, 
uh, five years of age. Um, I happen to have taken away her room in our home uh, for the sake of uh, my work, and uh, um, she always reminds me of that. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I don't think she'll forget no. that very easily. Um, I think uh, it's going to be somewhat difficult to be able to convey all the concepts to them um, so soon, uh, but I do know that they know a lot about COVID uh, from their own particular dialogues, right? And uh, like most children, they're quite resilient. What do you say to the people of York Region listening to you right now? I want to thank them tremendously for having followed all the public health guidelines, for having uh, gone through this uh, uh, terrible pandemic. Uh, They've made great sacrifices. Um, I think the worst is over, and uh, vaccines are really of a ticket out of this pandemic. I urge them to continue physical distancing, masking, making sure they're washing their hands, and essentially following whatever public health guidelines come to be. This is a changing and evolving pandemic. There may be new challenges ahead, and so we have to be adaptable and nimble. York Region's Medical Officer of Health for just another handful of days, Dr. Kareem Kurji. Thank you for your courage, your commitment, and your leadership through this pandemic. Thank you, Anne. Uh, Much appreciated, and take care. And you as well, thank you. After the break, Vaughn Council is back in session. Do you have a story idea for the feed? Call us at 416-335-1059 or email info at 1059theregion.com. Ann Romer and more of the feed coming up. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back. The pandemic fueling PTSD. Tina Cortez explains. The current wave of COVID-19 continues its burden on so many frontline workers, especially those who already suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder. Professor Sky Fitzpatrick from York University Faculty of Health joins us next on the feed. Professor, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Is it safe to assume that even before COVID-19, PTSD rates in healthcare workers were higher than in the general population? Yeah, that's right, actually. So we know even before the pandemic that healthcare workers who are exposed to very high levels of trauma, right, they experience uh, death, they experience seeing serious injuries very regularly, already had a higher rate of PTSD than than typical people. They, about 15% of people, of healthcare workers, experience PTSD or PTSD symptoms even before the pandemic. So talking about the pandemic, what factors specifically have triggered or exaggerated PTSD in individuals? It's a great question, and it's one that we don't completely know the answer to, but we do know that the rates of PTSD are higher in healthcare workers 
now than they were before the pandemic. And there has been at least some research that suggests that healthcare workers who are specifically working in COVID-related areas of a hospital, for example, have higher rates of PTSD than other healthcare workers. So one potential hypothesis for that is simply that healthcare workers are being exposed to more trauma now than they were before, maybe because they're seeing more death, they're seeing more serious injury. Um, but we also know that there are a range of other factors that influence whether somebody develops PTSD after a trauma. It's not just about whether or not you experience trauma, because most of us actually will experience trauma at some point in our life, um, but not all of us are going to get PTSD from it. So it could be that um, the added drain, the added overwork is contributing. It could be that um, being in a broader social context, if, if healthcare workers are feeling unsupported in some ways, um, might be contributing. Um, there's a range of different reasons, and we don't exactly know why, but we do know that healthcare workers are under serious strain from the pandemic and that their PTSD rates are rising. And do you think, speaking of broader social context, do you think controversies around vaccines and the vaccine mandate and some of the protests that we saw across the country outside hospital settings, do you think that's having an impact as well? It's a really interesting question. So I'm not aware of any specific studies or scientific research that would say, yes, this is impacting PTSD and healthcare workers and this is why. But what we do know is a couple things that might be relevant. So one is that one of the biggest predictors of who does and doesn't get PTSD after a traumatic event is social support. So people who generally have stronger relationships, who feel more support from those around them, are less likely to get PTSD than those who do. So if healthcare workers are not feeling well supported by their communities, I could imagine that that could play a role in the development of PTSD. So that's one thing to think about. Another thing that we know that plays a big role in the development of PTSD following a trauma is how people's beliefs change in response to the trauma. So some people... Um, following a trauma will have these significant changes to their beliefs about themselves, about the world, about people, about how uh, well-meaning people are, about kind of uh, how kind or cruel the world is. These are some of the things that we see change in the wake of trauma, often towards more negative perspectives, and those changes can predict the development of PTSD. So if healthcare workers are in environments that are changing their minds about things like that, about people, about the world, then they might be more vulnerable to develop PTSD as a result. And I could imagine that some of the backlash that they face amidst all of these, these policy changes are impacting that. So before we talk about the work environment, what about those around the person with PTSD? Is there a ripple effect? There is actually a, a very significant one. So we know that people with PTSD in their intimate relationships particularly are more likely to have conflict and problems with relationship functioning in their close relationships. And we also know that partners with people with PTSD are more likely to experience their own mental health symptoms like depression and anxiety. And it's for that reason that myself and my research team have developed um, an online intervention for couples where one person has PTSD, and we're actually testing it um, in healthcare workers right now. So, giving it to healthcare workers and their partners to both treat or reduce PTSD and enhance relationship functioning at the same time because we understand that these things are intimately connected with each other. So, could you tell us a little bit more about this online tool? Does it help the partners 
communicate better with each other? What is what is the point of this online tool? I yeah, I'm happy to. So the online tool is called Couple Hopes, and Hopes stands for Helping Overcome PTSD and Enhance Satisfaction. And it's based on some of the evidence-based face-to-face psychotherapies for PTSD. The idea is that one of the best predictors, as I said earlier, who does and doesn't develop PTSD is their social support. And we know that partners and relationships are impacted by PTSD, so they're all impacting each other. So the thinking is that if we can reduce PTSD symptoms and enhance relationship functioning at the same time, then we might have kind of a more happier, healthier unit of people instead of just one person as in doing like an individual PTSD intervention. So what we tend to do is we do a range of strategies and techniques in that intervention that are designed uh, to treat PTSD and reduce PTSD, but we also teach communication strategies for couples and talk about how to communicate around trauma and how to talk to each other in ways that uh, supportive for both of their mental health, which we feel like is particularly re- relevant during this pandemic. And our early research on this, which is very preliminary, suggests that both PTSD and relationship functioning are improving. So we're encouraged so far by the data. Excellent. Now, in terms of the work environment, how can the work environment be supportive or more supportive? So there's a a range of ways people can communicate in the wake of learning about somebody's trauma that makes them more or less likely to develop PTSD or recover from PTSD. And so what we generally want, whether it's in a workplace or broader than that, whether it's in personal relationships or anything else, is to help people communicate about these things in ways that are conducive and supportive to trauma recovery and are not going to be more likely to keep people stuck in trauma or PTSD symptoms. So some of the ways of communicating when someone's sharing about their trauma that are unhelpful based on the research involves minimizing their concerns, suggesting something's not as bad as they think it is, uh, invalidating or dismissing them, um, Victim blaming, suggesting someone's to blame for a trauma, of course, tends to be unhelpful, as well as sort of saying, like, you know, let's take your mind off it or don't think about it or kind of push it down. Those sorts of responses tend to predict a higher likelihood of someone getting PTSD from a trauma. And what we tend to want people to do is just give somebody space to feel their feelings, like, you know, communicate, yes, this sounds hard, it makes sense to feel upset, you know, something... So many of the healthcare workers that are out there right now are dealing with these undeniably difficult situations, Mm -hmm. these extremely frustrating, extremely devastating circumstances. Um, And I think it's important for people to allow and acknowledge that reality for them rather than to minimize it or dismiss it. And that is certainly something that we try and help partners learn how to do in our Couple Hope program. Professor Fitzpatrick, thank you for your time, and uh, we look forward to further details about your research. Thank you so much. And if if healthcare workers want to sign up, they can go to couplehopes.com to learn more. Over now to Jim Lang and the partnership between Blue Door and Habitat for Humanity. 
Well, most of you know, most of the listeners know about the work Blue Door does in New York region, uh, trying to help people find a place to live when they, they, they just don't have anywhere else to go. Well, sometimes it's not all about government. Sometimes it's about partnerships that work well for others, and that's why Blue Door is working with Habitat for Humanity GTA. Thrilled to be joined by Michael Braithwaite, the CEO of Blue Door, and the VP of Real Estate for Habitat for Humanity GTA, Josh Bernard. Michael, Josh, how are you, gentlemen? Very good. Thanks for having us. No problem. Uh, we'll start with you, Josh. Why the partnership with Blue Door? You're already doing great work with Habitat. Why did you feel that this was a good fit for Habitat, working in concert with Blue Door to help others? Well, I mean, Habitat is, is a homeownership model, uh, and we've been doing what we've been doing for the last 32 years in the GTA. Um, but we also believe uh, that we need to see a healthy um, housing continuum, and that includes everything from home ownership to um, affordable rental to market rental to um, uh, you know shelters. Um, so, Blue Door um, uh, is a great organization with a great mission, and the work they do is incredibly important. So, we thought that you know um, they're experts in their field. You know, we we have a lot of expertise in the development side, so. Thought it might make sense, and and it's been it's been great working together. And Michael, we're just coming out of the post election where there were many promises made about quote unquote trying to make housing affordable, but in the GTA in southern Ontario, that's a, a fantasy for a lot of people. This is a great way to to help Blue Door help others without relying on empty promises from the government. Absolutely, Jim. I mean, we have to if we're going to move housing forward, we've got to think and be innovative and creative. And I think partnerships are a good way to move this forward. As Josh said, it's a win-win. Habitat has this experience uh, doing this kind of development and work in the community. They have the community loves Habitat. They're well liked. The community loves Bloomberg. Um, so working together, we could get things done, and, and and we can provide the solution to the government. When they do come forward with those funds that uh, hopefully will come forward on the promise of election, we're going to be ready. Now, Kevin's Place, where people don't realize, is Blue Door's emergency housing program for youth who have to experience homelessness. Unfortunately, it's located in Newmarket, just north of Green Lane, and it offers a supportive environment for up to 12 male youth at a time. But this is an opportunity with the partnership with Blue Door and Habitat to make it bigger and better than ever. Yeah, absolutely, Jim. I mean, so, so if you understand the house that's there, it was never primarily, it wasn't built for emergency housing, so there's a number of challenges in it. One of them is we can only serve males because they're shared rooms. But looking forward, and we don't have a design yet, but if we took that small house and it's on a big piece of property and could develop it to maximize and create that density so we can have mixed income housing there for youth and shared accommodations, but also maybe for families and for seniors and for others. Some paying full rent, some paying market, uh, sorry, market rent, some paying uh, subsidized rent that they can afford. Um, it can be a great model. We can do a heck of a lot more for our community. And Josh, I, I've been lucky enough to be part of some of the Habitat builds, and this is where Habitat does wonderful things. And whether it's local contractors and builders and volunteers, they can make things happen and put things together and make things better for people. Yeah, I think we're we're excited to to work with Blue Door, work with the local community, um, engage volunteers, and and kind of build a legacy up there, um, and you know uh, provide some really much needed housing. Um, so uh, to us, it just makes sense to work with an organization and partner with other nonprofits like Blue Door. Uh, so we're pretty excited about it. 
I'm just going to ask you in, in a big picture thing. I mean, this is such a great initiative and a smart idea. I'll start with you, Josh. Um, it's it's hard to see housing prices coming down in a, a significant way, the way they're at right now. My wife and I, we simply, we've been in new market 17 years. We can't believe what our market value of our home is. It doesn't make sense to us. It's worth that much. How do we help families in the future beyond Habitat get into residences and get into the housing market in the future? Well, I mean, that's, that's the big question, right? Um, that's the... The, I think that's the solution that everybody's trying to come up with. And I think for us um, at Habitat and Blue Door, we recognize that, you know, uh, uh, organizations like Blue Door have land. Um, Habitat has building capacity and expertise. So when you put those together, we can take um, underutilized sites like Kevin's Place and um, add a little bit more density and, and build uh, a couple more homes um, to uh, kind of augment the the market and i think really uh supporting organizations like blue doors and habitat um um goes a long way in in in, in helping affordability in our community speaking with josh bernard who's the vp of real estate for habitat for humanity gta and the well-known michael braithwaite the ceo of blue door and michael i mean i think there's a connotation that oh someone's down in their luck they need some help from blue door but I'm hearing from people and from uh, seniors who are realizing they thought their pension would go so far, and then they realize they can't even afford rent. I mean, they, these aren't people who uh, are having any sort of issues. They simply just become unaffordable to live. Absolutely. I think one of the big questions, Jim, during the election when we say we need more affordable housing, the question is affordable to who? Yeah. So, so CMHC defines affordability as 80% of market rent. If you're paying... $1,600 for a one-bedroom apartment, even 80% of that is mostly unaffordable to people who are working full-time jobs, never mind a senior on a pension. Um, so I think, as Josh said, we have to be creative. We have to look at things like community land trusts, which we're working on as well. But we also are working with Habitat on another project, too, to look at, hey, if you can make your rent, how can, what kind of a program can we develop where you can actually maybe not own the home but start building some equity yes. that gives you some you know something for the future as well? We actually believe if you can pay your rent and many people can, you can build that equity and you can move forward and maybe look at ownership in the future or at least have some kind of a nest egg to move forward with. We have to be creative. We have to think differently. Partnerships are part of that plan. Hey, Michael, it's a great idea because both of our daughters now are in university, my wife and I, and they've asked us, how are we ever going to afford a home? But this is the kind of idea where they might be able to do it someday. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, also the, the whole home ownership piece is that it's such a Canadian thing. We have to own our home. We have to own our home. Um, I think we have to be realistic and think, you know, I have uh, kids around the same age as yours. Um, it might, they might be renters, right? If, yeah. if they don't have others that can help them out. And let's be, let's be real, right now, if it's a million dollars to buy a house and you need a $200,000 deposit, unless they're getting some help, that's going to be a stretch. And there's nothing wrong with renting. And I think that's where, you know, we were looking at some of the promises in the election. They really didn't pander to renters too much. And the reality is that renter pool is going to grow. In your region, there's not a lot of purpose-built rental. We have to change that, but it's organizations like Habit and Blue Door that are going to build and own these and keep those affordable for years to come for whoever's in need. And Josh, the one thing I do love about Habitat is that it, when they build something for someone, 
It's a nice size, but it's not redonkulous. It doesn't, you don't have to live in 4,000 square feet to be in a home. I grew up in a small house growing up. My wife did too, and we didn't, it was fine. Like I, I don't like, like, why can't we have smaller structures with people to live? Yeah, I mean, there's, it's, it's interesting because there's, there's some, some conflict at times because, you know, there's the growing up guidelines in Toronto, which, which uh, they want to see bigger, bigger units for people. But um, uh, at, the, at the cost per square foot it is to buy a home, um, it's, it's, it's really challenging. So you have to balance kind of size and, and affordability. And, and I think we've hit a good, we've hit a good uh, spot where, where we're providing, you know, decent, affordable homes that uh, people love to live in. Yeah, because I mean, I, I mean, being in some of your builds, Josh, they're well made. They may be small, but they're so well made and so well appointed. I mean, who wouldn't want to live in them? Well, I, I think what's really interesting is, um, uh, you know, every development that we have, the people that live there, the habitat family, just super hardworking individuals that uh, work really hard to and um, are great members of. Our, of our kind of society, and, and I'd love to call them neighbors. So, um, you know, I, I know that we, one of the things that we struggle with is, is still NIMBY, not in my backyard, yeah, yeah. but uh, get to really meet these people. They're, they're fantastic. Um, they're families with kids, and, uh, you know, they have jobs, and they're working, and they're, they're paying for a mortgage. So uh, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, overall, it's a great experience to come out and, and volunteer on a job, on a project. Because you get to meet the family and and uh, and and actually build something. Michael, I think, and Josh, this is fantastic. Michael, for someone listening and wants to get involved and be a part of this in any way, whether it's with their time, their skill, or their finances, how can they help? Listen, hey, we'll take your time or your talents, um, and your your donations. Go to bluedoor.ca. Get involved. There's a number of ways you can do that. Uh, reach out to me at michael.c at bluedoor.ca. I'd love to talk to you. And Josh, for Habitat, how can people do the same? Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, uh, you know, go to our website um, and uh, check us out. Um, I, I think that, uh, Michael, was one of the things that I was talking about is, you know, do we, do we start a, a Blue Door Habitat Fund for this specific project? So, you know, lots to still figure out as we move forward on the site, but um, uh, definitely something that we'll come back and update you on. But this is the future, as far as I'm concerned, about helping others when it comes to having a place to live, is partnerships like this with Blue Door and Habitat for Humanity, GTA. Josh Bernard, Michael Braithwaite, gentlemen, thank you so much. Thank you for what you do in the region, in the GTA. You're making the world a better place, and uh, nothing but respect for you both. Thanks for having us. Thank you, Jim. Take care, gentlemen. Take care. September means many things to many people, especially this year. For kids, teachers, and parents, it's back to school. For a lot of company employees, it's back to the office. And for Mayor Bevilacqua and his councillors, it's back down to business, city business, that is. Maurizio Bevilacqua, the mayor of Vaughan, joins us with a look at all that has and is happening in his fair city this month. Welcome to the feed, Mayor Bevilacqua. Thank you so much, Anne. It's always a pleasure. So your first meeting of council was on Tuesday, September the 14th. How did that go? Well, it's gone very well. People are really eager to, back, to get back into the swing of things here. But, uh, we know, these are challenging times, but we're doing the very best that, uh, that we can. And there are positive results here uh, in the city. You know, I was just reviewing... Uh, 
all that has occurred even like throughout the, throughout the summer months and uh, it's quite an impressive uh, impressive uh, list of of the initiatives uh, as you know covid has always been uh, the focus uh, as uh, covid-19 persists city building uh, continues and in july we we welcomed the announcement from metrolinx that uh, clark avenue station will be included as a neighborhood station as part of the young north uh, subway extension that's a big announcement uh, as you know the the federal and provincial government uh, uh, both uh, stepped up to uh, to support um, the city of Vaughan and uh, Richmond Hill and, and Markham for this New York Young North uh, subway extension. Uh, it's a very important piece of infrastructure for the future of uh, of our area. Uh, I was also reviewing some of the investments made in uh, in the city of Vaughan, and since uh, 2010, more than 13 billion dollars in building permits have been issued uh, by the city. And one thing that we noticed. Uh, year to year uh, for the past two years has actually been during COVID the uh, building permit numbers have actually uh, gone up mm-hmm. and um, and we're also of course dealing you know on, on July 16th uh, we, we moved into step three of Ontario's roadmap uh, uh, to, to recovery and made all those uh, changes uh, uh, and uh, also um, and one of the things that I did I was uh, pleased to participate in the federal government's national summits on anti-Semitism and Islamophobia. These are issues, obviously, uh, that uh, that concern us. And, of course, we all took in uh, uh, the um, uh, the great participation of the Canadian Olympic team. And uh, and uh, here in the city of Vaughan, we, we cheered for uh, Daniel uh, Gasinski uh, and uh, Matt Cabraya and uh, welcomed also Stanley Cup winner Anthony uh, Sorelli. Uh, the numbers here, uh, from an economic perspective, uh, are much better than most other parts of the world, and indeed uh, our, our country as well. Uh, we are uh, well-equipped uh, to, to uh, beat the, the economic recovery uh, challenges that, uh, that are upon us. Uh, all in all, you know, we, we, we need to continue to do exactly what we're doing, and talking about uh, September, and obviously the first thing that comes to mind when we speak about uh, September is obviously uh, school, uh, kids going back to school, and uh, to coincide with the first day of classes, uh, the city had launched its new speed limit policy, uh, which means that we are now decreasing the speed from 50 uh, to uh, 40 kilometers per hour because public safety is uh, is a priority for us. What a busy summer, and we're in September now, and we're just about to say goodbye to it. I'm curious about October. It marks the 30th anniversary of Vaughan becoming a city. 30 years. Wow, that's quite a, an evolution for the city, isn't it? Yes, and you know, and I've been a member. I was a member of parliament and a, a mayor. I've been in public life for over thirty years, and I remember very clearly the, those days in nineteen ninety one. Uh, I was in Ottawa when uh, when the city of Vaughan, the township town of Vaughan, became city. And I thought it was a, a great move as we hit over a hundred thousand in, in population. And the city's history over the past uh, thirty years has been exceptional. Uh, we now we know we have a population of more than uh, three hundred and forty one thousand. Uh, we have nineteen thousand business. Has created over 227,000 uh, jobs, which really speaks to how vibrant our our city is. It's rich with rich with talent. We have the resources and networks to to help businesses and individuals to to prosper. And we are also, quite frankly, experiencing an extraordinary renaissance. Uh, 
we're home to Canada's first smart hospital. We we have York Region's first subway station and another one on the way, as, as we mentioned earlier, and a vibrant downtown core. And, and you know, we opened up a 900-acre park and a, and a top-tier university also came, uh, came to, to Vaughan during this period of time, uh, Niagara University. And we try to always work towards achieving a higher global position as a city of, uh, of choice. Uh, and we continue. We continue to build. You know, I'm working very hard to establish uh, a new school of medicine in Vaughan in cooperation with uh, uh, York University. And uh, city building city building continues. And, and one of the things that is very important in, in city building, of course, is our official plan. And that is a good point to bring up. So one thing I've noticed, Mayor Bevilacqua, in our many chats together through this pandemic, you love to get input from your citizens. This official plan, Vaughn's official plan, you're asking the public, the citizens of Vaughn, this question, what kind of city do you want Vaughn to be in 30 years? You have a virtual public meeting coming up next month, October 13th. Why are you asking the residents of Vaughn for their input? Because their input is vital and very important uh, to city building. I think that uh, in many ways the city must reflect the spirit of the people, and the spirit of the people needs to be manifested in a way uh, that they see themselves in it. I always tell people, look, you know, at the end of the day, you're going to uh, live in this city. Uh, I want you to participate to the point that, uh, you know, 10, 15, 20 years from now, 30 years from now, even when future generations live in this city, I want you to have your fingerprints on this city. I want you to see yourself uh, in the city. And so we're going to be asking some very fundamental questions uh, about the future of our city and what kind of a city we want to build. And, you know, I'm going to put out some of the questions that we will ask, you know, what should communities in the future look and feel like? What kind of business development and job opportunities should the city plan for? How will people move around Vaughn? How can the city continue to act as environmental stewards, create a sustainable environment, and increase resilience to climate change? How can the city design accessible communities that will continue to meet the needs of all residents and allow people to age in place? And how can the city continue to create a vibrant place for people to live, work, and play? These seem like existential questions about the real purpose of, of real city building, and I think it's important that we continue to seek input of individuals who, by the way, are the people that live in this area yeah. and this city. And, you know, we, we need their input because uh, they can help uh, shape the future. You know, a lot of people always say, well, you can't really predict the future because that would require, I guess, psychic powers. But uh, the reality is you can certainly help shape it. And, uh, this, you know, city building is an act of creation and, and a labor of love. And if those two things uh, come together, you get an exceptional city. And that's what I think is happening here in the city of Vaughan. So October 13th, it's a virtual public meeting because City Hall remains closed to the public at this point. Seven o'clock at night, have your say when it comes to the Vaughan official plan review. So here's my question, and I know this about you. You are always open to suggestions from your citizens, but you in particular like to hear from young people. And in this case, young people, and I'm talking about teenagers, maybe those in their early 20s, who in 30 years will hopefully still be Vaughn residents and will be reaping the benefits of what is being said today about Vaughn's future. 
Yes, and young people matter. And, uh, you know, you always want to get a cross-section uh, of input. And, and young people have a perspective that is uh, extremely valuable uh, to, to all of us uh, because uh, they see the world through their prism, the, their own filters. And, and, and that matters to, to me personally as mayor of the city uh, because ultimately what you're doing is you're building a city for future generations. Now, I have a very long, long-term view of, of city building. I'm talking about, you know, 200 years, 300 years. Like, that's one of the things I really take pride in is the fact that, you know, 300 years from now, when people see 900-acre park, North Maple Regional Park, they will look back and say, you, know, you can imagine now, 300 years from now, many people will be living in the city of Vaughan. And to have that open space, that green space, is going to be, um, is, it's going to be fantastic. And, and, what I, and, what, and the reason why I do think that uh, uh, young people uh, provide um, a valuable perspective is because uh, ultimately we all matter, you know. Like, you, you know, you, you want to make sure that everybody's opinion is, is valued uh, everybody's opinion uh, is taken into consideration uh, because ultimately nothing is really born in a vacuum. Uh, you need people's input, and uh, we're so very fortunate to have a, a very uh, active uh, uh, active population here in the city of Vaughan that is willing to share uh, their wisdom with us. And an encouraging mayor. And I'd like to say it this way, that it is passing the baton in the relay of life. Mayor Bevilacqua, the mayor of the city of Vaughan, always a pleasure. I look forward to our chat next month. Thanks for joining us on the feed. Thank you so much. Stay safe. And you as well. When we come back, coming soon to the silver screen. Follow us on Twitter at 1059 The Region. Ann Romer and more of the feed after the break. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back to the feed. I'm Ann Romer. So TIFF is over, but there's still plenty coming soon. Candace Sampson and Ann Brody go to the movies. I don't think we have anything to do this weekend. There's no election to contend with. It's just a normal weekend. Yeah. So what are we going to do? What entertainment do you have for us? Yeah. (laughs) Well, there's lots. And I do have some suggestions from TIFF for people to to put away in their pockets for when the films are released because they're going to start rolling out now. So, uh, and the main one I want to talk about is I'm Your Man, a German film. Dan Stevens from Downton Abbey uh, plays a robot. And the woman who who tests him for three weeks is doing it only because it gives her funding. It'll ensure her funding to go to Chicago to study cuneiforms because that's her business. So Tom's, Tom, um, Dan Stevens speaks fluent German to begin with. Yeah, so I was surprised thing, to see him yeah, talking right? in the in the trailers, <laughs> and, and flipping back and forth between a British accent and, and German. It was really well I know, done. I know he's so funny, and he's so, such a good comic actor. Um, so she gets him. He comes home. She's embarrassed and resentful, and hates that she has to do this. And she she's uh, thinks it's putting her ethics online. And of course, he's programmed with all these great things like compassion, kindness. Um, sexual knowledge shall I say and uh and other attributes that you might look for in a partner um but you know he's a robot 
So she's torn and she resists and she resists and she resists. And she's funny that way. She's so uncomfortable, uh, which is why we think she's been alone for so long. So things happen and the, she calls the boss of the robot place and says, look, I can't do this. You have to come and get him. And the woman says, uh, you underestimate it. Well, it turns out she's a robot. So not only does this look to the future and our ethical choices that we have to make then, but <laughs> it looks at what on earth is this girl going to do? So it's really a treat on so many different levels. It's yeah, it, it, lo it looks fantastic. Anything else from TIFF we should keep up on our radar? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Lakewood. The reason being, it's a thriller from Philip Noyce, who's a terrific Australian director, Naomi Watts stars, she's Australian. So they went to North Bay, Ontario, to shoot this thriller, this where most of it, she's running through a forest. So while they were there shooting, they were locked down. So she stayed there all winter. And I'm not sure whether it was last winter or the winter before, but she spent an entire winter up in North Bay. So... <laughs> That was funny. So wow, plays, good good for her. <laughs> yeah, she plays a mother whose son is troubled and he goes to school and there, something happens at the school and she's getting all these text messages while she's running. She's miles from home um, and she comes to believe that he's in there with a rifle. So uh, it, it really does get kind of exciting and fun and, and, and wild. And she, she's completely dependent on a local auto mechanic who can see the school from where he is and he phones her with updates. So that's, uh, that's kind of good. And as I say, it, most of it takes place with her in the woods running, hurting her ankle, fretting and trying to figure out what to do. So, you know, it's coming up in theaters. All right. Uh, we only got a couple of minutes left. And there's two that I really, really want to get to. Uh, qu so quickly, the most beautiful boy in the world. That oh my God. really kind of disturbing to me. Oh, my God. Bjorn Anderson, uh, a Norwegian actor. He, his, he was 15 when his grandmother made him audition for um, a Visconti film, Death in Venice, with Dirk Bogart, which is about an aging guy in Venice who gets a an obsession on this 15 year old character. So, you know, he, Bjorn is stunningly beautiful as a 15 year old, look him up. Um, and I remember back in, back then when I would see the ads for the film, I, I had such a crush on him. Well, cut to today, he lives in squalor, alone in Stockholm and he has a beard down to there and really, really long white hair. And he, because he was so traumatized by all of that attention, the filmmaker forced him to go to all these gay bars to show him off. Um, he became the first idol, Western idol ever in Japan. And he was trailed by what he calls swirling bats. So in other words, people preyed on him. And it, uh, it ruined everything. It, it's just the most heartbreaking thing. Oh, my goodness. My and, heart and, goes out to him. And speaking of heartbreaking, because we just got a, a little bit of time left, I want to quickly just talk on Tom Skerritt's um, oh, really, really profound performance. Um, yeah, one of my favorite character actors. And unbelievably, he looks so young. He's 88 years old. So he sets out with his dog to walk uh, back to his home across a mountain range. Um, 
for unknown reasons. We don't know why he's going. And he has nothing but trouble on the way. Uh, a dog comes along and attacks his dog. So he shoots it. The angry owner takes his rifle and leaves him in the middle of nowhere with no rifle, no dog. He has no phone. Uh, and he's rescued and, and taken in by this wonderful vet, a woman. Um, it, 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 there's just so much going on. It's just a rainbow of emotions. It, I just, I get shivers thinking about it now. So, you know, certainly mark down east of the mountains to watch when it's released. All it's, right. Perf- perfect. And you've got all of these, plus you've got a lot more, where to find them, where to watch them, uh, and what you think of them on what she said talk.com. So anybody looking for entertainment this weekend can go there. Thanks so much, Ann. Thank you, Candace. See you soon. If you missed any part of our show, please head to 1059theregion.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Audible. I'm Ann Romer. Thank you for listening.